Faith to Superglue of Marriage is the tireless message this morning. And that song, God, I Need You, I say that every time I come up those steps on Sunday morning. Happy Valentine's Day to you. I remember when I was little in grade school, uh, I went to a small school. There was only 17 in the whole class. So I don't know about you guys, but we would buy Valentine's for everybody. And um, even in first grade, I, I started to notice girls a little bit when I was in class. Most of the time I was in the closet because my teacher put me in there for discipline. But, but nonetheless, you, you get these and you have these little hearts in them. You remember them hearts? Candy Hearts has just went off the chart as far as going crazy with you, and I'll share that with you in a minute. But you'd get these Valentines, and sometimes if they really liked you, they'd put a little heart in there that would say things like, be mine, uh, on and on and on. Well, now I got a heart here laying on my thing. I don't know who put this up here, but it says this on it. Now, you tell me, as an old man, how I would know what this meant. Yes. What's that mean? I, I guess it means yes, but on the back it says sweet. So from now on, Diane, when I come home, when I walk in, I want you to say yes. So if you could do that, I'd really appreciate whatever. I don't know. They're putting text stuff on here, BFF, all kinds of stuff, and I don't know. I'm going to have to enlist my grandson, Jude, to be able to translate that for me. But uh, <laughs> Who in here got something for Valentine's Day? Anybody, card, flowers, anything. So there's a few of you, so I think maybe I need to have a time for husbands to be able to understand what you do. Now, last week, for no reason at all, I stopped in Kroger's and got some flowers and brought it home to Diane, and the clerk said, are you in trouble? I said, no, I'm just thinking ahead. That's funny when you buy flowers for out of no reason, they think you're in trouble or something like that, but anyhow... I hope that uh, you feel loved today by your uh, significant other or by your dog. You know, that's always that story about that's why I love dogs so much. You lock your dog and your wife in a trunk for an hour and then open it up and see who's glad to see you. <laughs> in my case, it would be Izzy, my dog, I'll guarantee you that. Valentine's Day occurs every February and it's a, a time of love and uh, really, if you do any studying behind St. Valentine, it's kind of a, a mysterious uh, study, actually, to find out where he came from and what that has to do with. And I think there's some vestiges of, of uh, Christianity and uh, ancient Roman tradition in it as well. But we're in a series, Faith, the Key to Survival. And I, I think this last, you know, this last year and going into this one, it's been a crazy, confusing world. And uh, Faith has, I don't know about you, I'm speaking for myself. Faith has helped brought me through that, actually, in, in different areas. And I do believe that key, the key to a long, secure, lasting marriage in a relationship is faith in Christ. I'll, I'll always believe that. In Genesis 2, we read about God creating a woman for Adam, the first man, verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a companion who will help him. <laughs> Even God knew that, guys, we couldn't do it on our own, that he, he had to make somebody to help us. And in the immortal words of my son Joshua, who 
coined this phrase that I, I believe I've quoted a thousand times. He said, without a good woman, most men would self-destruct. And I know that's true in my case. In that verse, the King James Version uses the word helpmeet. I will make a helpmeet for him. The Hebrew is really interesting here. And the, the Hebrew word for helpmeet is ezer konegdo. It means lifesaver. That, that's quite a relationship, isn't it? That God knew that we needed help, so he brought this other person into our life to be our lifesaver. Then we read in verse 24, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Joined together. Hebrew says joined together means cleave. It means that you are glued together. And here is the problem we have in life. When it says glued together, God means glued together for life. But you and I both know there's not anybody in here that our family has not been affected by divorce. You hate it. God hates it. And that's why he hates it, because it's not supposed to be that way. But as we live our lives, we don't always listen to God and do what he wants. And here's, here's the flip side of that. In a marriage relationship, there's two people. One person might want it and the other one don't. And then there you got, therein lies, lies the problem. But I think about that and the pain that it has caused. When you're glued together, if you glue your fingers together with super glue, when you try to get them apart, there's some pain involved in that. And I think that's the way that it is. Here's the point today, and I want you to take this to heart. Regardless of your past, it's gone. Today is today. The relationship that you're in today, that is what God is most concerned about. Regardless of what happened in the past, we can't change it. We can't rewrite history. It's the relationship that you're in today. Faith is the superglue of marriage. So we ask this question going into the faith part. Exactly what is it that pleases God? It seems that in the hard business of living life, this should be the bottom line question for the believer every day of our lives. God, when I get out of bed this morning, what will please you today? Not what will please me, because i got a whole list of stuff that pleases me. And maybe not a list that would please other people in my life, but what about you? What, what do you want me to do today to please you? Does doing the sensational please God? There's some enigmatic verses in Mark that tells about believers who were able to pick up snakes or serpents and drink poison without being harmed. But does God expect us to demonstrate life-threatening feats in our lives? Or seeking such extraordinary displays along the lines of Satan challenging Jesus on the top or the pinnacle of the temple to jump off and God would save him. In Matthew 4, verse 7, Jesus rebukes the devil and he says, we're not supposed to tempt the Lord our God. Do we please God by putting out a fleece as Gideon did? Maybe that was a sign of Gideon's doubt. Here's what pleases God, and we, are, we probably know that answer already before I read this scripture. This is what it takes to please God. Short verse, 
Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Pleasing God takes faith, which includes three things. First, coming to God. Faith is we approach God, and, it's, and, and that faith is characterized by an attitude of total dependency, that I believe you're there, God, and I'm going to put my life in your hands. Secondly, believing that he is there involves an unwavering confidence in his presence, always knowing that he's there. It amazes me sometimes when we sin, we don't think God's looking, and, and he's right there all the time. He knows everything we do. He knows every breath that we take. Thirdly, trusting God to keep his word. Faith relies on his promise to reward such trust. Faith involves risking, resting, and relying. We found that in the lives of Enoch, Noah, and uh, Abel last week. And in these verses here in Hebrews... God introduces us to a couple. Actually, in this whole hall of fame that he's mentioning in Hebrews 11, he gives these guys like 12 verses, and no one else gets that, but he talks about Abraham and Sarah, a couple that, that had faith to do extraordinary things. He eulogizes them. The faith of Abraham and Sarah were neither sensational nor superstitious, but wasn't it was sourced in the same promise of God. Here's Abraham's faith in verses 8 through 10, and then we'll look at Sarah's. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he had to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in an, as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. When Abraham was called, he responded obediently. It was, it was founded in the word of God. Genesis 12:1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. This was before... The Shekinah glory of God. There was no pillar of cloud in the day, and there was no fire at night for Abraham to follow. There wasn't a lightning bolt pointing the way. Abraham heard the very voice of, voice of God, and that voice was audible, objective, and specific. Here is where our faith rests in the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. Two remarkable phrases in Hebrew 11 communicate Encyclopedias about Abraham's faith. He went out not knowing where he was going. In fact, he left his homeland at the drop of a hat just on the words of God. And we have to understand this. He wasn't a young man. He was 75 years old. He had lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He had built up a reputation. He had, he had wealth. He had a lot of possessions to move. And in those days, there weren't van lines or U-Haul or anybody else to help make that move. And to complicate things, Abraham was given no roadmap of the journey. He didn't know where he was going, and he didn't know how long it would take. Can you imagine trying to explain this to his father-in-law and his family, let alone the rest of the relatives? 
He must have thought maybe his elevator didn't go all the way to the top at that time. You might think Abraham reached the promised land, that he could settle in and, and put down roots. This was not the case. Verse uh, 11, 9 says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. He lived as a foreigner in a land where he had no rights or citizenship. Furthermore, he lived there with not such as a square foot of land to his name. Twenty-two years ago, when Diane and I moved to Sullivan, you can't believe how often I heard this term the first 10, 12 years. You're not from here, are you? Almost every place I went, it, it, it carried a lot of weight here. So, in a sense, we were, uh, were foreigners, in a sense, and, and finally... I guess we're accepted. Nobody's burning crosses in my yard or anything like that, but you get my point. Over at the newsstand, which in the beginning I spent a lot of time, met a lot of people, Bill Tennis, if you remember him, he leaned over one day and he said, you have an ordination. And I ran over to my office and brought back my paper and said, I got a piece of paper, I got one, you know. So that was his point, is... He was concerned I was just some fly-by-not lunatic that came in here uh, that wanted to start a church, and maybe even some thought that to lead people astray. And as Rich McPhail called me this morning a dandy, that was a compliment, my friend. So, and I think uh, some of those people thought, man, that guy is a dandy. So uh, whatever that might mean, maybe it has different definitions. But you can't help but stand back and ask yourself, how could an intelligent man like Abram, who was upstanding in his community, that was successful, just up and pack up all of his stuff and move? How, would, how could he subject his wife to that type of life without knowing what was ahead? Going into the unknown, 11.10 gives us a clue. For he was looking for the city which had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He didn't focus on the sand and the grit and the tent that he was going to live in. In this whole process, as God was moving him, he looked beyond it. He envisioned what was beyond it. There was an eternal city. And he knew that he was only going to be here, like James said, for a short period of time. But what he was looking forward to was that forever city where we will go someday if we believe in Christ. That was his motivation. It wasn't to make money. It wasn't to be successful. It wasn't to be a big shot. <laughs> he looked far beyond that and praise God if you can do that. But that's tough business. He transcended this life and looked to that forever place. But while Abraham had his eyes on distant horizons, what was going on in his wife's mind? Picture this, if you will, as a wife. Your husband comes home. Hey, you know what? We're moving. And you have no say. Absolutely zero. It's, it's, it's a lot to think about, and I don't know 
what kind of husband you are, what you've done in the past. But a lot of times when husbands make decisions without consulting their wife, it causes a little grief down the road. Here's a little experiment for you. Next spring when it starts getting nice out, go up to Harley-Davidson in Terre Haute and buy a $30,000, motorcycle and ride that home and don't tell your wife and see how that works out for you. So you get my point. Was she irritated? Was she kicking and screaming as Sarah packed her bags and mounted her camel for that long caravan ride through the desert? We have no record of what she did. On the contrary, the cameos of her in Scripture underscores her submissive nature, 1 Peter 3, 6, and her childlike faith, Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. Always starts out, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability conceived even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. He's talking about Sarah's initial reaction when the angel of the Lord told her she was going to have a baby, and she laughed because her and her husband were well beyond childbearing years. But, she, but as sure as God had spoken, Sarah did give birth to a son, Abraham was 100 years old, and she was 99 when Isaac was born. The writer uses the same phrase to describe Sarah that he used to describe Abraham, by faith. It reveals volumes about her life. And evidently in her heart and in her life and in her mind, she and Abraham had shared that same faith that when she looked at life, she didn't see the here and the now. She looked beyond to that city, knowing that as she was obedient, that her and Abraham would be together in that forever place. Faith, the superglue of marriage, we've, we've talked about that. It's the glue holding Abraham and Sarah together through thick and thin. It's the glue that's superglued Diane and I together for over 50 years. She does not like me talking about her in church. But those of you who have been here a while realize that has no bearing on my life. It's the whole concept of it's easier to get forgiveness than permission. I admire my wife for her faith in Christ and her faith in me. When I was called to preach, I think it was a shock to both of us, our past didn't line up <laughs> with that. And I fought it the first few weeks of a class that I was taking till the last night, and God spoke into my heart. And I told her, and uh, she said, I will go wherever you're called. Wherever God leads you, I'll go. And she has for three moves. I have to say, it's not been easy. She, we left family and friends and a root, so to speak, and she had to leave two houses that she loved dearly. And this is another thing with a male mind. I don't think men can grasp the enormity of what a house means to a woman. It's her castle. And when you leave that, 
You leave in the walls of those houses all kinds of memories. You take them with them here, but you, they're not there. Um, the notches on a door jam where you measured a kid as they grew on and on. You know what I'm talking about. God's blessed us in, in so many ways. And I remember leaving and, and both of us being homesick. You ever been homesick? It's tough business. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a sickness in a sense or it's a hurt that you can't take a Tylenol and make it go away. It's deeper than that. And I think sometimes we even get homesick for heaven. And the older we get, I think the more you realize that. That you're sitting there one day you wake up and you're 70 years old as myself and my wife. Well, we got 10 years left. 15 maybe at the max. Things, it starts changing your mindset in a sense. And you start thinking more, I guess, about that city that's builder and maker and architect is God. So we talk about the glue that cemented Sarah and Abraham together. What's that mean for us? Here's some Here's four principles that we can kind of glean from their life as we talk about application. Verse 13 is the first principle, and it's vision. Although all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Ability is, vision is the ability to hope beyond restrictions of the present. They had found that hope together as they looked to God's promises waiting for them without really knowing what they were getting into when they left, but they had great faith in God. So I ask you this morning, how's your vision in your life, in your marriage? Is it focused on things of this earth or is it focused on things eternal? Second principles, pursuit Verse 14, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Abraham and Sarah were seeking a real homeland, cultivated in the identity of God. So in your home, what marks it? What's your pursuit as a husband and a wife? What is your pursuit? with your children if they're still home. Third principle is abandonment. This is a tough one. And indeed, verse 15, and indeed if they were, they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Abandonment is withdrawal. It is saying goodbye to something forever. It is leaving without looking back, knowing that you've burned that bridge, that even though you want to go back, even though sometimes as believers, as I say this a lot, we want to go back to the mud because we love sin. Let's admit it. Nobody in here doesn't love it. We all love it. That's why it's such a problem in our lives. We want to go back. We can't. If you do, you're going to, it's, going to, it's going to cause problems. And once you set your faith toward God, once you start down that path, you have to realize that you Going back is not going to be a, a good gig, so you have to leave that life behind. And it's extremely hard for us. That's why we need each other in the church so much. We can't hardly do it on our own. And as you step out in faith, are you timid 
testing the ground as Indiana Jones did as he stepped off last week in that clip as he stepped off into the unknown, that deep, deep chasm, that rock chasm, and he couldn't see the bridge, but it was there, very gingerly stepping off. You know, I, I, I like comfort zones. I like that, but we can't live there. It's like I always use this rug for an example that this is my comfort zone, and God says, why don't you walk over here to the corner, and then when I'm ready, I'll tell you to, to step off. I'm not telling you where you're going, and I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen to you. And, and sometimes I wonder if he did spell it out, it'd, it'd make us more resistant, and we wouldn't go. But it's taking those steps, taking those steps of faith. Fourth principle, desire. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That's a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The term desire means to stretch out after or yearn after. It's a yearning. It's a picture in your mind and your heart more than you've ever imagined before. I, I wonder sometimes as we read the scripture, we find excerpts and places where it talks about heaven, but it's grand and it's glorious, but we don't get the full picture. Paul said, I once knew a man caught up to a third heaven, speaking of himself. And it was so glorious that he couldn't put it in language, and he wasn't allowed to talk about it. Abraham and Sarah had that view, as we, we should have it. It's, it's tough for us. And we ask this question. It's, it's, it's left begging like a stray dog for a scrap of meat. If a life of faith is so great, why do so, why do so, so few people find it? An important reason is that most people would rather do anything than risk. In my comfort zone, it's not much of a risk. I know my life. I know what I'll be doing in the morning. I know I'll go to my house and it'll be warm. But to risk that, that's a whole different concept because taking risks means becoming vulnerable. And that may affect our finances, our friends, our future, our feelings, our occupation, our families, where we live, and a host of other considerations. The human tendency is to want to be safe and secure, to hedge our bets, to insure ourselves against loss. Basically, we fail at faith because we fear to risk. Another reason is people of faith don't advertise it. They don't send the Goodyear blimp out and put your name on and say, I'm a person of faith. They don't, they don't do that. But the question is this morning for us, are you willing to risk? Are you willing to be a model for this Hebrew 11 type of faith? If you're kind of teetering on the edge, maybe Jim Elliott's words will cement that down a little more and maybe galvanize you. And I quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was speared to death by Alka Indians on a sandbar in Ecuador. Now I'm sure his wife Elizabeth, as she 
read those words that they were etched in stone in her heart as well. Faith, super glue of marriage. How is that glue working in your marriage, your relationship today? Is it like epoxy that continues to glue your hearts together even closer and stronger than when you started that relationship or you feel the edge is cracking a little bit and maybe that glue is inferior and it's starting to tear apart? This is the thing. I don't care how many relationships you have or how many times you've been married in a sense. When you cleave together, when you join together, you and that person... You have a story that no one else will share. You can have six or eight different partners, but it, you'll have a different story with them. But my point is, it, it's the story that you're living now. And there was a, an old movie, I used this clip 20 years ago probably. The story of us, Michelle Pfeiffer and Bruce Willis, they're young. So if, if you're listening on the internet, it probably won't show. Go to YouTube and and bring up the story of us, and you'll find this clip. It, you need to watch it. In this clip, they had they were on the verge of divorce. And for some reason, the wife comes to her senses and realizes, hey, we got a story here. And if we go our separate ways, our children and we will write another story, and it won't be the right one. So... Watch this clip and kind of really listen to what she has to say. I realize in life, Lord, that almost every problem, maybe every problem is a spiritual problem. And when we get away from you and when we both don't seek your face, uh, our enemy has a way to get a claw in there to chip away <laughs> at our love for each other. Let's pray you protect these people, Lord. Give them peace, give them hope, and help us to always hang on to you. We love you, God. We give you praise and glory for we ask it in your name. Amen.